0: All right, take your Bibles, if you would. Turn to the second easiest book in the Bible to find, and first one being Genesis. This one is Revelation, last book in your Bible. Some of you are like, Revelation at Advent. Yes, we'll be there in just a few minutes before we jump in there. Let me just say hello to uh, Hendersonville and our East uh, Asheville campuses, our Franklin campus as well. Thank you, guys. Merry Christmas. And also, again, West Campus and uh, Brevard Campus. Uh, Soon and soon and soon uh, you will be opening as soon as we get the uh, date of the shipment of some of the equipment, we will be able to give that, but it should be the 1st of February. Uh, so let me also say this, great job on uh, really all the time, but particularly in the month of December, the way you've ministered to your communities, uh, as was uh, hopefully mentioned uh, at, at your campus as well as here. Great job the last... Uh, Few weeks. We talk all the time about declaring the gospel and demonstrating the gospel. And so, whether it be Operation Christmas Child, whether it be the ministry at the prisons, uh, or whether it be, as, as you just heard, about the 40,000 meals, and particularly, let me just say thank you to Manna and Flavor First. They have done a, been a great partner for, with us. So, uh, anyway, Revelation chapter one. Now, let me say this. As soon as I said Revelation one, some of you were like, I thought we were in Advent. Now, Advent down through church history has been Advent, all Advent means is arrival. And so, usually, we think about the first arrival of Jesus, all right? Uh, that God became a man, dwelt among us, Christmas, all of that, awesome. But it's also Advent is the idea of not just the first arrival, but also the second arrival. And in the book of Revelation, we're gonna be again in chapter one. And most people at church today, you are either one of two camps, all right? Don't raise your hand, don't admit it. But most people at church are in one of two camps. One camp is very unfamiliar with the book of Revelation, it's spooky. It scares you, you read stuff about dragons, and it, to you it sounds like you the, uh, the Bible installment of the Lord of the Rings. And you're like, man, that is, uh, crazy stuff happens there, I'm just going to avoid it. On the other hand, there are other people that that is almost the only book that they read. Everything that they do, everything that they look at, they are extremely passionate about this. Some of that passion is not based on the text as much as it is on conjecture. And so what you end up having is you've got charts, timelines, you got convictions about which famous people down through history are the Antichrist. In my lifetime, I know that Jimmy Carter, has been, he has been accused of being the Antichrist. Uh, who else down through the, well, there's a bunch of them down through the time. Uh, I know Trump has been, I know Carter has been, I know Vladimir Putin has been. And so all these people are like, that's Antichrist, that's Antichrist. And so what happens is we get way out on the limb and it's like, okay, what does the Bible actually say about it? And preachers are the worst at times. There was a preacher uh, back, like in the 80s, he wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 88. And so it sold a bunch of copies. As a matter of fact, and he wasn't a dummy, he was a NASA scientist, and he did some kind of code that he unlocked. And it's like, I know, and he's like, people would say, well, Jesus even said he didn't know the date. He didn't know the day he was coming back. He's like, I don't know the day, I just know the week. True story. He's like, I know the week he's coming back. And he said the week that he's coming back. And 88, uh, And that week came and went. And he's like, I did a miscalculation of my math. I did something wrong. And he wrote another book. True story. He wrote another book called 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 89. Right? So point being, a lot of conjecture. A lot of stuff has been written, talked about, timeline. I mean, it. I and mean, we laugh at that, but I know, and I'm not putting it down. I'm not putting it up. I'm just saying I know that uh, I know the Left Behind series sold about 60 trillion copies or something. And some of you got that. Some of you got all the copies. Some of you even watched the movie. Uh, if you can't, get, okay, let's just. To, 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 I'm just going to ask Arden real quick. How many of you all actually have somewhere in your house a Left Behind book? Put your hand up. Okay. All right. All right. All right. So. Um, I'm not going to ask this one, but I would bet you that there's a few of you, you still got, you laughed at the left behind people, but you still got some Y2K food leftover that you stored and you're like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And it didn't happen. So how do you look at this in a way that it's like, all right, I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Cause that's typically what happens. And please hear me instead of obsessing and being dogmatic over dragons, stars falling, Whether Russia is Gog or Magog or the number 666 or the four horsemen, all right, even I get, I still get, I've read the book a bunch of times, I still get confused sometime on what do the symbols mean? There's a literal meaning of the symbols, but what are those literal meanings? It could be A, it could be B, and you got people on both sides. The main thing is, the main point of the book is crystal clear, and it's about the second advent, the second arrival of Jesus, and it's actually mentioned more times than the first arrival And before we jump in the text, here's what I can promise today because it actually says it in the text. If you and I will, if I will read it out loud and you will hear it and then we all will do it, there is a built-in blessing in particular of this book. Now there's a blessing for the whole book, but there's a blessing particularly for the book of Revelation. And you're like, what's that blessing gonna be? I don't know. The word blessing is the same word that Matthew uses in Matthew chapter five when it's like, blessed are you when, and it's talking about spiritually prospered, spiritually enriched, even happy. And so what we can guarantee is in the hour or so to, we're here together corporately that in the year of Christmas and COVID, I can say, you know what? There's some things that God wants to show me that will enrich me spiritually at church today. So Revelation chapter one, verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's highlighted. It's not highlighted in your Bible. It's highlighted on the screen because this is like the key to the whole book. Revelation, where we get our word apocalypse from, it means the unveiling. It means the uncovering, and he says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. We'll come back to John. This is the John that wrote the Gospel of John. This is the one that wrote Revelation. And this is the one that wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He was sort of BFF with Jesus during those years of ministry. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. And then verse 3 and then we'll take a principle. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy in a church back in the first century. I mean, that's what they would do. They would sit there, somebody would stand up and they would read it and then blessed are those who hear it and to keep what is written in it for the time is near. So what I want to do is I want to try to help us put some handles around the blessing that God might have for you. And here's the first one. If we understand this, this will give us a more accurate view of who Jesus is a more accurate view, because right now at Christmas time, our culture loves Christmas Jesus. They love Christmas Jesus. Little six-pound, eight-ounce, little snuggly in the crib. We love that. But what Revelation does is it pulls back the curtain to say, you know what, you need to understand, it's not just little six-pound, eight-ounce Jesus, it's also a God who's on the throne. Now, almost everybody has seen one of the two, one of the versions of Wizard of Oz. The one that I remember basically goes like this. The first part, the whole first part of the movie is about the great and powerful Oz and he's, he's just like a loud voice. He's intimidating. He is awesome. But then toward the end, and again, if you hadn't seen it, you got about three seconds to close your ears. All right. What happens at the end is, I think it's a little, what's the little dog's name? Toto. Toto. Thank you. Notice it was a dog. All right. So the dog, the dog pulls the curtain back and there's a little old man back there pulling levers and has a bunch of sound effects. In some ways, Revelation is like the opposite of the Wizard of Oz, because at the Gospels, in the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that is a picture of Jesus in his humiliation. Jesus lives the life we're supposed to live, then dies in our place, and he dies in humility on a cross. But the book of Revelation is not Jesus in humiliation, it's Jesus in exaltation. It's Jesus high and lifted up. It's the Jesus who is the great and powerful God, and that's what John needs to hear. Now, again, it is tempting for us to think about little baby Jesus, and that is awesome. And we'll get to that on Christmas Eve, I promise. But right here, it's this is the God-man. The theology is 100% God, 100% man, which, by the way, is an extremely... I know some preachers nowadays, it's cool to say, that's not super important. It is super important. It's not just biblical, it's super important. He's not 50% God and 50% man. If he wasn't man, he couldn't die in our place as a substitute on the cross. If he wasn't God, he couldn't live this sinless life. So this is the God-man, and what the vision is here is you get your Christology. Listen to me. This is church today. Christology is your belief and understanding about the person and work of Jesus. Christology is gotten to some degree from the Gospels, but not just the Gospels. You go on to the epistles and it starts to pull the curtain back and then you get to Revelation and it pulls the curtain all the way back and he's like, John, you gotta see this. Let me put it this way. If you and I were to see Jesus today, if you were to see Jesus today, we would not see the homeless, humble, marginalized Galilean peasant. That's not who you'd see. You would see Jesus in glory, not in humility. Revelation 19, and you can figure out what symbols mean, but there you have a picture of the exalted Christ in a coming to make war on all those who reject him with a tattoo on his thigh, with a sword in his hand. So this is not the baby cuddly Jesus that you see saying, listen, verse four, he's on the throne. Verse five, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Verse six, glory and dominion forever. Verse seven, those who do not repent will wail at his coming. Verse eight, he is the alpha and the omega. Now here's my point. Here's my point for you as a believer. John, who is getting this vision, as I said earlier, he was like Jesus. If you were going to try to pick the best friend of Jesus in the three and a half years of ministry, it would be John. I mean, think about it. He was in the top, he was in those three, that inner circle, All right, James, Peter, James, and John. That's the John. He was the one that uh, got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was the one that when Jesus is dying on the cross, Jesus looks down and John is there and he says, you take care of my mom. So if you're telling somebody to take care of your mom, you trust them, you're like, that's the guy to do it. And note, this is the first time John has seen his best friend. This is the first time John has seen Jesus since Jesus ascended into heaven. This is key. And what does John do when he sees Jesus for the first time since his ascension? You say, bro, it's awesome to see you. Man, the fish are biting in the Davidson. Let's go. It's not what he does. Skip down to verse 17, and it says this He says, And I fell at his feet as though dead. In other words, I thought I was going to die. And before you think this is just kind of, well, John's just kind of being humble. This happens every time the curtain is even pulled back an inch for people to see the glorified Christ. And just look, think through your Bible, Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, which John says when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah 6, John says, You know what? That was a picture of the pre incarnate Christ. What does he say? He says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am ruined. I'm a dead man. What happens when Peter sees him on the mount of transfiguration? I'm gonna die. What do the disciples think when Jesus is asleep and then he stands up in the boat, calms this storm? They're like, who is this? We are more afraid now of you than we are of the waves. And so what is that for us? Please, we got to put, we got to skin this thing and mount it and say, you know what? We're never going to go here again, but please listen to me. So many times and this, I've got about three preacher confessions. This is like, this is a mutual counseling today. Because there's like two or three things that are trigger points for me, and part of it is my upbringing. And here's trigger point one: when I see a picture like this of Jesus, I want to scream. What are you doing? That—that's full lips, tailored beard, Brooke Shields hair, blue eyes, blue eyes. Before you write me a letter, let me get you even more mad. This next picture is the most famous picture. This is the picture, even before I was a Christian, I'd walk in and go, you know what? Okay, listen to me carefully. (laughs) My first thought as a lost teenager was, uh, I could take him. (laughs) That was as a lot. don't write me. I'm just saying I was lost, all right? But I'd look at a picture like that and you're like, If we throw hands, I win. That's what I would think. That's what I would think. And you look at it, and listen, when you look at this, and you got brown hair, quaffed beard, all that stuff, even on a human aspect, the chances in that day and time, in that place in the world, of finding somebody that looked like that is the same chance of seeing Bigfoot, all right, riding a unicorn on a rainbow toward a pot of gold. In other words, it's not gonna happen, all right? You're not gonna see anybody like that back then or they would have stood out. But especially now, soft, meek, snuggly, faraway look in his eyes, beautiful hair shampoo look, that is not, that is not the Jesus that you see in the book of Revelation. And why is that important? Because John in the church at this point in time, John and, John's already going through a trial. John's exiled on basically our what we would call Alcatraz Island. He's on a place called Patmos. He got stuck out there. It's an island about six miles by 10 miles in the middle of the ocean. It's, they already tried to kill him, and they said, that didn't work. Let's just put him out there. The only thing that is going to sustain John, the only thing that's going to sustain you during, I mean, is anybody like, yeah, let's do 2020 over again? Anybody? Like, man, I love this. I had a brother down here, I loved his little, he had a little Christmas ornament and had a roll of toilet paper and it had 2020 on there. I'm like, bless you, brother. That's an awesome ornament right there. Nobody's looking for doing this over again. And what we need and what John needed in his situation was not the, was not the family therapist Jesus. It was not the uh, it was not the daily bread Jesus. It was a exalted sovereign in control ruling the universe with his feet up jesus that's what he needed and uh, again that's what we need that's what a cynical watching world needs right now that's what your relatives if they're going to come into town or if you're going to there or whatever even if you're going to zoom and have a zoom christmas meal guess what that's what they need to see They need to see a Christian who understands, you know what, I serve a God who is high and lifted up and exalted and not defeated in any way, shape, or form. And if that happens, check out what's gonna happen. Go to these next verses. John to the seven churches, that's kind of that version of multi-site is what I would say. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, Throne there, by the way, we're going to come back to, by far the most important piece of furniture in the book of Revelation, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the king, you got to get this, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who, and this is super important, you didn't come here to get a, like an English lesson or a Greek tense deal, but this is important, to him who loves us and has freed us, One of these is in the present tense, that's the word loves, that's current right now. He loves us now, and he did something back in the day that showed he loved us. And he freed us from our sins, how? By his blood. So get this second thought in mind. If we're going to make sure we get an accurate view of Jesus, what will happen immediately is you'll get more comfort from Jesus. You'll get more comfort from Jesus. How does that work? John and the early church were struggling at this point. They were growing; they were a big movement, but the bad guys looked like they were winning. People have a hard time figuring out. Okay, how do I date? There's 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 like a 30 year gap where people on both sides and they have good arguments both ways on where exactly do you date Revelation? And when you date Revelation a certain way, you have certain rulers in charge. So let me just let me just give you both of them. If you date it one way, there's a guy named Nero in charge. All right, Nero is just he is he is just cray. I mean, that's all you can say. He is crazy. And he's, one, he's the guy that's famous for when Rome burned, he blamed the Christians and he blamed them for a bunch of other stuff as well. So maybe that's what the background is. Or if the, he's not the one in charge, his successor, again, Domitian, he's the one in charge. He's the one that's trying to make it illegal for Christians to do anything but worship Caesar's Lord. And of course, the Christians couldn't do that. So either way, they are in a difficult situation. And so what does he say? He says, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. In other words, all rulers, all kings, everybody is going to give an account. Everybody's going to give an account to Jesus. And so let me just say something about the throne. This is, this is preacher confession. This is preacher pet peeve. Uh, number two, it's okay. All right, so just, I love you, but here's something you will not see happen. And I'm not trying, don't, don't say, oh, this was my church when I grew up. Listen to me, just, this is me. This is Bruce, not Bible. So I'm taking over here for a second. If you see somebody, if you walk into any room and you see a throne, and you see somebody, man, woman, anybody on the throne, your first thought is, man, he's in charge. Especially if you see people around the throne and he's sitting down, and everybody else is standing around them, you're like, that's the one in charge. So again lost teenager, go back to lost days, when I would periodically step foot in a church, the ones that I would go to, up here on the platform, you would have these high-backed chairs that in my 16-year-old lost, unregenerate mind, and you had men sitting in these big thrones, what that told me was they're in charge and it's their church. Please hear me, It's not my church, so when you see me out and we talk at a restaurant and you go, hey, big ticket, and that's funny, and you don't say, I go to your church. It's not my church. It's Jesus's church. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's Jesus's church. And we're never, just so you know, we're never gonna have these thrones up here just because we don't wanna even give a scintilla of thought that it's a bunch of guys up here and it's their church. It's not. It's Jesus's church. And when you look at this, What he's telling John is, listen, don't worry. You're worried about Nero? You're worried about, you're worried about Caesar? Listen, John, your name is gonna end up being one of the most common names people name their kids after. People are gonna name their dogs and Lord forbid their cats called Nero. They're gonna name the dogs Nero and they're gonna name the sons John. So why are you worried? Now here's the deal. It has been an amazing run, and I think we got another awesome bunch of years ahead. And we get to see some stuff as pastors that are amazing. We do. Even during this crazy year, just the hundreds and hundreds of stories of people coming to Christ, getting baptized, all that, that is so fulfilling. But over the years, if you pastor for any length of time, you start to see some stuff that you're like, dear Jesus, why does that happen? When are you going to do something about that? Why don't you bring some justice now? And I mean, just think back. One of the first funerals I ever did, I told you this a couple years ago, I think, probably about the third funeral I ever did was for a two-year-old. Little boy lived out on the other side of Lake Houston. Somehow gets through the screen door. Parents are fairly new believers. Little boy gets out, walks out there, walks up there. They had a pool. Falls in the pool, drowns. I show up a couple hours later. I'm like, I have no idea what to tell mom and dad. I mean, what am I, what am I going to tell them? Really, what would you tell them? Cheer up, you know, (laughs) your best life now. What are you going to tell them? And you can just kind of extrapolate that out through scenario after scenario. We got to understand we're living in that in between. Sometimes some of the songs that are out there it's like an overrealized eschatology right now, we are in the first advent, all right the first advent. this is not heaven, but you just look, I mean just down I was thinking this week because I was just like i got to get some got get some personal cleansing just some of the stuff that you get you, you see over and over again uh, i've seen you've seen it see people that they get the cancer right off the bat. And they're like, it's going to beat it. I'm going to be strong. It's going to be awesome. And then God's going to heal me. And then for God's sovereignty, God chooses not to heal them. And you just see not only their bodies shrink, but you oftentimes see the faith of their family just shrink down to nothing. And you're like, no, listen, this isn't heaven yet. You see marriages that used to be thriving and strong and people looked up to them. And all of a sudden a torpedo just slams into the middle of it and the whole family busts up. You see, you see kids who get abused, and you're just like, good night. String that guy up. I'm talking about the dad or the abuser. One guy said it this way, because uh, again, Jesus' return, which is what the book is about. It's again, it's not about first and foremost, it's not about the dragons, it's not about the chip, all right? It's about Jesus. The whole thing is Jesus is in control. Jesus is coming back. The whole whole book is saying this won't last forever. And you need to hear that. The hardest part about the trials is what? It's not the depth of the trial. We've talked about this. It's not the depth of the trial. You're going through a hell on earth. You're like, you know what? I'm going to hold on to God right now. It's not the depth of the trial. It's the duration of the trial. If you don't know when the trial or even if the trial is ever going to end, that is difficult. And what this book is showing us over and over and over again is no matter how far out it goes, all the pain you're going through right now if you're in Christ is temporary. And you're like, I don't even, I don't even need to look up, look at that. Here's a, a, a I even heard of this guy, I just read his quote. It said this, the second coming of Jesus Christ is good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. If you were a slave in Pharaoh's Egypt or in the United States in the early 19th century, if you were an Israelite exiled in Babylon or a Kosovar exiled in Albania, if you're a woman living in a culture where your husband gets mad at you and then locks you up in the closet, then you don't yawn when somebody mentions the return of Jesus Christ. And that's the same thing whether you can't beat that addiction whether that divorce is going through, whether you pray, whether you ask, whether you work and it's still going to go through, you got to understand that pain is temporary. And you're like, well, what's the comfort in that? What's the comfort in that? Look at this last section. He says, and he loves us, present tense, and it says by his blood. A couple things here. I know, because some of you right now, it's like you're listening and you're listening. You're like, I don't feel God's very close to me. And you got to understand your feelings cannot lead you your feelings have got to follow what you know to be true. Psalm 34 says this, God is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So if your heart is broken and your spirit is crushed, God is not walking away from you. He's actually rolling up his sleeves and moving towards you. God has not forgotten your address. God has not forgotten where you live. God has not forgotten the difficulty. The Bible says that he you hides your tears in a bottle. That's detail. John, would, Another time he put it in 1 John 4.10, and you need to... If you don't, if you got five verses you memorize, this needs to be in your top five. First John 4.10 says this. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, some of you are like, man, last couple of years you've been saying that word propitiation a lot. You know why? Because it's a good word. It's a great word. As a matter of fact, it would be the one word that helps you understand the gospel almost above any other word propitiation simply means a payment that satisfies. Propitiation means a payment that satisfies. It means that God not only demanded perfection, but he provided perfection. He demanded perfection and then he provided it in the gospel. That's why Paul would say in Romans chapter three, he says, God is the just and the justifier. Propitiation, again, a payment that satisfies. And if you're in Christ and God is satisfied with what Jesus did on the cross, then he cannot be dissatisfied with you. She's talking about I'm this and I'm that. If you are in Christ, he cannot be dissatisfied in you. And so the comfort you're looking for is, uh, you know what, when I see Jesus... He embraces me as a friend if I'm in Christ, and then I get to see how much he loved me by looking at the nail scars still in his hands. That's the one thing that's still going to be there on his resurrected body is that. And so let me finish this way, and then we're going to put this into effect. Verse 6. Verse 6 actually begins in the middle of verse 5, and it's called a doxology. Now, one last, one last word here. Doxology is a fancy word. You hear it sometimes. Doxology is from two words squished together doxa, which means glory, and then logos, or really the verb form of logos, which means word. And so what it means is I'm going to speak a word, I'm going to say a word that gives God glory. And so usually you talk about a doxology, we usually talk about it in musical terms, but literally what it means is I'm going to speak a word that gives God glory. And so here's what he's saying. He made us a kingdom, priest is God and father, and you see this in verse 5 too, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, Amen. Verse 7 and 8 will be done. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Again, first letter of the Greek alphabet, last letter of the Greek alphabet. I'm the beginning and the end. Says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty so here's the last point about how do we get a blessing out of this. More, it gives you more worship to Jesus. That's the natural overflow of getting comfort from Jesus and get an accurate view of Jesus. What happens? Then we just worship. Now, I'm just going to read you a couple of the scenes you see. Chapter 4. Don't, don't turn to these. This whole thing begins to build in the whole book. The whole thing builds in the book. Chapter 4, 24 Elders. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Chapter 5, the worship gets louder. Angels join in. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Chapter 7, worship just expands. They fall on their faces, what? Before the throne. Chapter 15, martyrs arrive at the throne. God gives them instruments to play in the band that leads all of creation in the worship of Jesus. Chapter 19, What seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And then in one of the closing scenes of the Bible and in the closing scenes of human history, we read nothing less than the total jerk back the curtain of the glory of Jesus Christ over all creation. And here's what John says at the end. He says, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. So here's my challenge. Challenge is this, you and I are commanded Listen, I understand everybody's in different places worship-wise. Some of you all grew up and some of you are like you grew up in a real... Close, you know, keep your hands and feet inside the car of the roller coaster. Don't get outside that box. And you're like, even the songs we do, it's kind of pushing you a little bit. It's like a little bit too popping, a little bit too loud, and a little bit too rocking. And you're like, settle down. Some of you grew up in a very expressive culture, and you're like, fire this thing up. The grave is empty. We need to do something. And a lot of us are in between. What you do see in the Bible is that worship is a verb. Worship is not a noun as much that you it's not a service you go to. I went to worship today. The question is, did you worship today? Because you got all these different ways that you do this from raising your hands to singing to shouting to clapping to dancing, and it's whether you feel like it or not. Now, let's just, let's just talk about it. Let's talk real. Here's what you will not hear from our worship pastors, and I'm so glad because they've got a maturity level, but you've heard it before from who knows where. And you got a worship pastor that comes up. And sometimes you got preachers that come up. And the first thing out of their mouth is is what? How's everybody feeling this morning? How's everybody feeling this morning? How do I feel? That's the starting point. How do do I feel this morning? Well, I feel terrible this morning. If you're at early service, it's 8 o'clock in the morning. I feel terrible. The bank is going to foreclose on our house this week unless I come up with some money. I feel terrible. My husband walked out a few weeks ago for a younger model. I feel terrible. My kids are on my last nerve. I feel terrible. I'm so sick and tired of being cooped up in an apartment during COVID. I feel terrible. So the question, the question is not how do you feel. You don't need to hear a worship pastor. You don't need to hear a preacher go, how do you feel this morning? Instead, it's like, tell me about something that I should know. Tell me about somebody who is sovereign over this whole stuff. Tell me somebody that knows me and loves me still. And when we worship, what that is, that's expression of faith. It's like, you know what? It's kind of hellish right now in my home, in my job, but God is good and God is sovereign, and God loves me, and God died for me, and then God rose from the grave. And so all I want to ask you to do is turn up whatever dial you're on up a notch even this morning. I promise you, and I've said this a thousand times, I promise you, this is one, I promise you, there's not a person in this room, there's not a person at Franklin, there's not a person that's gonna get to heaven and God's gonna go, man, You were way too crazy down there with all that worship stuff, all right? You were just a little bit out of hand in the way that you sang to me and clapped to me and prayed to me and talked. You're way out of hand. That's never gonna happen. And again, what you and and, and you're like, I don't feel like it, what do I do? You understand God made us what they call, I think it's called psychosomatic, where sometimes if I'll do what I know to do, then God will sometimes bring the feelings along. For example, like if you kneel, what is that? bodily, what are you saying? If you're kneeling, that's kind of a picture of submission, right? If I'm kneeling before somebody, it's like, that's submission. I am before somebody who's not like me in any way. And I don't feel like it when I got down there, but you stay on your knees long enough. And what's going to happen? You're on your knees long enough and you start to pray. It's pretty hard to be cocky and have a lot of swag when you're on your knees talking to an almighty God. It can be done hard. What do you do when you raise your hands? If you have your hands up, you're like, I don't want to be bapticostal. Listen. Just putting your hands up is just, it's a, what is it saying? It's like, you know what, it's, it can be a picture of surrender. You know what? Man, I surrender to God. What do you do when you have your hands like this? It's like, you know what, I'm needy. I need something. What do you do when you just open your mouth and sing? Because some of you are like, I don't even like to sing. I just like to watch you all sing because I don't have a good voice and I don't know tenor from a baritone to whatever. Listen, I don't either. I live in a house with two people with great voices and I'm not one of them. And so i got to listen to what harmony is, and i got to listen to what, you know what, that's perfect pitch. Man, I don't know a pitch at all. I don't know pitch. I don't know any of that. But God's not up there judging me based on how good does Lori sing or how good does Larry sing. He's like, I want to hear from you. I mean, every once in a while, I'd like you to sing off key to me. And when I do that, you know what? Comfort of Jesus, accurate view of Jesus, all that comes flowing in. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you practice, and then we're going to go. Because somebody's like, it used to be old school. It used to be, all right. All the worship, we did all this worship to prepare to preach. Honestly, preaching actually should prepare us for worship. Worship is not just singing. We'll talk about that some in late January. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray, and then at every campus, a worship band is going to come up. And let me say one other thing real quick. Okay, should I? Wait, should I go there? Okay, some of y'all don't like Repetition. Some of you are like, well, you know, these are 7-Eleven songs. You know, we sing them, what, seven stanzas, 11 times, whatever. Okay. First of all, it's biblical. Okay. Check out some of the Psalms. They go over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so what you want is you want an engaged mind. That's great. That's great. But you also want, you want an inflamed heart. And some of the time when all you're singing is, you know what? The Lord is good. The Lord is good. or oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. You sing that so you're not having to think of the words as much as you are. I am adoring a great God. And so uh, I'm going to pray, and here's what I'm asking you to do. do I'm going to ch- do one thing. Do one thing. That one thing is not trying to beat the other people out before the ushers dismiss you. That's not it. Do one thing that would push your dial of worship up at least a notch. So if you've never raised your hand, you're like, you trying to make us raise your hand? Just trying to make it worship. If you've never raised your hand, maybe you just do this right here. Or maybe you're just like, I got a huge need today. I've got a huge need. I'm a single mom and I got two kids looking at me. You know what's your need? Maybe you just do this right here. Maybe you're like, you know what? I've been a proud person. Maybe you hit your knees and just cry out to God. Maybe it's just the fact that you open your mouth and say, I am going to sing to him. I don't care what other people think. I'm going to sing to my God that I'm going to worship him. Father, I want to pray the next just two minutes or so, just two minutes, that the people, we would simply respond with a more accurate view of Jesus, the fact that you comfort us in our afflictions, and that we would respond in authentic, engaged, inflamed worship.